Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the Pulp magazines for over 25 years. Online at thepulp.net. In this Pulp Event Podcast, Lori Powers interviews author and pulp historian Will Murray. It's titled The Wild Adventures of Will Murray, a Pulp Fest Profile. Lori is author of Queen of the Pulps, The Reign of Daisy Bacon and Love Story magazine. Will is an author and pulp historian, whose latest book is Master of Mystery, The Rise of the Shadow. This event was recorded on Saturday, August 21, 2021, at PulpFest 2021 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, I think I'll start out with just asking you some introductory questions. So if anybody's not familiar with your work, which I can't imagine, but probably should anyway. So um, you're best well known for your work with the Doc Savage character. Can you tell us a little bit how you got involved with that and what attracted you to, to that work? Well, I was 15 and I had started buying paperback books, uh, having grown up on Marvel and DC Comics. And uh, one snowy night I went out looking for something new to read. I'd started reading Edgar Rice Burroughs and a few other writers like that. Uh, but I didn't have a co- concept of pulp writers. You know, I was just sort of buying whatever looked interesting, and I went out and I saw a Doc Savage novel, and I'd seen them before, and this time something just struck me, and I just picked it up and I bought it, and I said, oh, these are really good books. So I started buying Doc Savage intensively, and, uh, you know, The Shadow reprints soon followed, and so did G8 and The Spider, and uh, I was buying some of the Weird Tales writers like H.P. Lovecraft and Clark Ash and Smith and Robert E. Howard. So I was somehow gravitating towards pulp writers and paperback without having a concept of the pulp magazine world. And that, those were the door openers. Edgar Rice Burroughs, Doc Savage, The Shadow, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and it wasn't long before I decided I wanted to read every Doc Savage, even though I didn't know there were nearly 200 of them. And so that became, uh, soon became a quest to buy the pulp magazines because Bantam Books was reprinting them at a certain pace, and I was wanting to read them at a quicker pace. And so that's how I fell into it. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. And then what made you decide at what point to start authoring some of these novels? Well, um, first I started writing fanzine articles on Doc Savage, right. The Shadow, all this stuff. And the, th- the, the, the thing that triggered um, me writing Doc Savage, which had never crossed my mind, was I visited Mrs. Dent, Lester Dent's widow, in her house in La Plata, Missouri, around 1979, I think it was, maybe 1978, I'll have to look it up. And uh, I had sold an unpublished Doc Savage, I had agented an pub- unpublished Doc Savage novel, The Red Spider, to Bantam Books in 1978, made her some money, so she appointed me her literary agent. Okay. The estate of Lester Dent. So I went out to visit her for the first time, and I went through Lester Dent's manuscripts. And the first thing she showed me was this old gray or dark green filing cabinet, a typical filing cabinet they still make. And she said, "Where do you want to start?" And I said, "With Doc Savage." She said, "We'll start with that one." Uh, and I pulled out the first draw, and I can remember the smell of the old old paper. And I was going through the manuscripts, and I was seeing the outlines for the first time. I went systematically through every Doc Savage uh, manuscript in that particular uh, filing cabinet, and I came across Doc Savage outline number 22, Python Isle. Mm-hmm. 
And I said, there's no dark savage type of python. I don't, what is this? And then beneath it was another outline, dark savage outline 22, the sea magician. And I said, well, I read that one. I never heard of this one. And, and they were outlines. And they were outlines, 10-page outlines. And uh, I read it, and I said, this is a good story. But you never wrote it. And um, uh, Mrs. Dent allowed me to make a photocopy, because it was a little treasure to me, an unwritten Doc Savage novel. Uh, and you know, over time, a myriad of months, I, I went from studying this and saying, I wish he'd, read, he'd written this, to I wish he'd at least written the first few chapters. I'd like to read the first few chapters. Mm -hmm. To someone should turn this into a book to maybe I should. So she gave me permission and I, I wrote a draft and I got Bantam Books interested and they were thinking of publishing it but then they said well we want to finish reprinting the series. And so 11 years later they came back to say okay we're ready, we're finishing the series, we've got Philip Jose Farmer writing a Doc Savage novel, you, we want you to write three more. So we start with Python Out which I'd already submitted to them as a manuscript. And long story short, I sort of fell into it, but it took 11 years to go from, you know, writing a draft to uh, having It took a 11 years for them to get back to you then. 11 years, which is not, not completely unusual in publishing. In so, the meantime, I've been writing mm -hmm. ghost, ghost writing the Destroyer paperback series, and oh. I did like, at that point, I'd probably done 25 or 30 of them. Oh, wow, okay. So my writing career went on without Doc until Bantam Books sort of caught up with me again. Okay, so what were some of the challenges that you faced when you were finishing these new Lester Den Doc Savages? Um, it depends on what I was working on. If I had a full outline, I would just try to follow the outline as okay. best I could. If I had a half an outline or parts of outlines or unfinished manuscripts, it's like, okay, he started this book, he went off track, he decided he would start the book over, he went a different direction, so we have a completely different opening to a book he finished with a, in, a, in a different way. So what can I do with this? Well, I've got to change character names and some story elements, and I've got to invent something that fits this so the story can go in a fresh direction. And that was a big challenge, but that was also a lot of fun, because in typing the manuscripts over, I'm getting into Lester Dent's mental machinery. And I'm understanding how he constructs sentences and words. And so when I ever, ever I write a Doc Savage from a, a manuscript fragment or outline, I'm always retyping it from scratch so I can plug into mm -hmm. the whole Lester Dent mindset. And, you know, I remember when Bantam you know, said, let's do more. You know, we did it for a couple, three years. And I said, well, I wasn't planning to do more than three, but... Let me see what I have. And I always wanted to work with Lester Dent material. So I, I would work for an outline that he wrote for a book he didn't ever wrote, never finished or whatever. Or, or I would, here's a Dog Savage outline that he wrote, three chapter outline, outline, three outlined chapters for it that he just didn't use. He just discarded. And here's a whole back of a book he outlined that he just went off in a different direction. I can take this, these four chapters here, and this last 12 chapters here, or, or 10 chapters, and I said, all I gotta do is write a middle. Or all I gotta do is write from that outline, write a middle, and finish it from that outline. And since he was kind of a modular writer, he wrote the formula, you could actually do that fairly easily if you had the right components. Mm -hmm. 
So, but a lot of it is the, just get, getting the style down, using his vocabulary as opposed to someone else's vocabulary or my vocabulary, because I want to, I, I feel if you love a character like Doc Savage or Tarzan or Spider or any of these guys who have a strong writer behind them, you really want the part of the experience is the writer's style, his sensibility, and how he he writes a character. For instance, there was a I read I read a Tarzan short story not long ago where it starts off Tarzan has already been captured, he's in a cage on a boat, and even though Edgar Rice Burroughs didn't say it was Tarzan and Tarzan wasn't really speaking, you could tell it was Tarzan because of the sort of the sense how you write about Tarzan, you realize, okay, this is Tarzan. And look, look how he's establishing that this is Tarzan with almost no effort. Because if you know Edgar Rice Burroughs' style and you know Tarzan, there's no question that that's Tarzan. But another reader would not know who that character was. So getting the essence, the spirit of, of how the writer brings his character alive to me is a big, it's a big challenge, but it's the part of it that I really like. Yes, most very gratifying. Because yeah. Yeah. I don't know that anybody wants to read a Will Murray Doc Savage or a Will Murray Tarzan. Well, they might, <laughs> but that's not what I want to write. Right. That's probably why they've been so popular, as you've yep. been able to copy that style. So you touched on some of the other characters that you've been working with over the last few years. Why don't you talk about those a little bit? Well, the best way to talk about that is when I started The Wild Adventures, it was with Doc Savage. We had two manuscripts, two cover paintings by Joe DeVito, who did these wonderful paintings here. And we didn't know how successful they'd be. So we did two Doc Savages. They sold. There was a demand for more. We kept going. And after a couple of years, we were staring at the 80th anniversary of Doc Savage. And, and I was talking to Joe DeVito, and I said, I gotta, out of the outlines I have, i got to come up with one you got to come up with a cover that's worthy of the 80th anniversary. And Joe said, well, you know I own the rights to King Kong. And I knew that. I just didn't connect the dots in terms of mm -hmm. something we could do together. And I said, well, could we do Doc Meets Tarzan? He said, yes, we could. I could make it happen. So I had to clear it with Condon asked, And once I did, it's, we were doing Doc Savage Meets Tarzan, a dream project. You mean King Kong. King Kong, sorry. Um, and so we did that. And the next year, I started getting hints that maybe you should try Tarzan because you're doing so well with this, these characters. And in fact, when I wrote Skull Island, which is my Dark Savage meets King Kong, which is an awesome book. I, I kind of had a little Burroughs flavor in it because I didn't want to do the 1930s Kenneth Robeson style because it was 1930s style. Mm -hmm. So who was writing 20 years before who fit was Edgar Rice Burroughs. So mm -hmm. I kind of gave it a little Burroughs flavor, especially mm -hmm. since it involved dinosaurs and jungle. It wasn't hard. So we did Skull Island. And then I started hearing from people suggesting, you should read out, reach out to Edgar Rice Burroughs. Maybe you could do a Tarzan. So Joe had worked with them, doing a sculpture and other things. So we did, and they were amenable to it. So suddenly we're doing Tarzan, completely unexpected. And since we had King Kong, let's do Tarzan, it's King Kong. So that was my second book with Tarzan. And then um, we were coming up on a contract renewal on Doc Savage and new people were in, in place and I said, can we do The Shadow Meets Doc Savage? And they said, sure. Can we do Tarzan? I mean, can, can we do Pat Savage as our own book? Sure. Pat Savage is Doc Savage's cousin, so they let me do that. And the next thing you know, um, we're doing a sequel to The Shadow Meets Doc that was Empire of Doom. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, so I did two of those. Two of the, and, and, and I'm finding the crossovers are selling better regular books and people are more excited and they're more promotable. So I said, well, okay, let's, what can we do for crossovers? And I'd always loved the spider. Okay? And um, I knew Joel Freeman, who owned the spider at that time, and, and Matt Mooring, my co-publisher, was very friendly with Joel. So Matt sort of opened the door in the sense of feeling him out. And I talked to Joel, and Joel was very excited about me bringing back the spider. But he said, can you bring back G8? Can you bring back Operator 5? Can you bring back other characters? I said, yeah, we do crossovers. So we cut a deal to do three books, and they would be crossovers, and I would bring out every one of the characters that Joel wanted brought to the surf, to the forefront again. So we ended up doing two spiders, and that's the third one I'm working on now, and Joel wanted every character possible reintroduced, so we, he suggested we do in the back of the hardcovers a short story with some of the characters that didn't fit the lead novel. So all of a sudden I'm full of characters, you know, having mm -hmm. to revive them. And... Uh, how do you juggle all these? As well, I mean, you have, it's a mindset thing. You have to, if you're going to write the spider, you should reread some spiders, or read or reread some spiders. Yeah. You can write Doc Savage, you've got to read them and plug into that. So you can't just switch. You can't just, you, you've got to go into that mindset and stay there until mm -hmm. the book is done. So we're doing the spider now. Then we got the right to do Tarzan meets John Carter. So that was Tarzan, Conqueror of Mars. Now we're talking about a sequel, and you know, so it just snowballed, mm -hmm. you know, and you know, the core audience really liked these books. Mm -hmm. They're not in bookstores, they're not making a lot of money, but the licenses are happy. Uh, I'm happy. I'm doing books that were, would have been dream projects when I discovered this stuff. Would be anybody's dream project. People are talking about Doc Savage beating King Kong since 1933. They've been talking about Tarzan meets John Carter since 100 years ago. You know, and just through these weird coincidences, all these projects dropped into my lap. King Kong meets Tarzan. The creator of King Kong wanted to do that as a, as a movie in 1935. He couldn't get the rights to Tarzan, and his own rights to King Kong were kind of muddy. But that would have happened in 1935. It would have been a classic. Mm -hmm. I, it took until 2016 for me to do it. And it's like, it was just amazing. You know, it was amazing. I remember Joe DeVito saying, you know, we should do King Kong meets Tarzan. And I said, well, I just did Skull Island. I don't know if I want to write about dinosaurs in Skull Island again. And I said, yeah, maybe, but I'm not really feeling a great story here. And then Barrow's birthday came around. It was September 1. And the weekend that came around, I was seeing all this Edgar Rice Burroughs stuff on, on Facebook. And I started thinking about it. Yeah, King Kong meets Tarzan. What can I do with that that isn't just going back to Skull Island, and I, and I, I remember it just popped into my head that in the movie they knock King Kong out with gas bombs, and the next they put him on a boat. And the next thing you know, he's in New York. I said, something must have happened in the middle. There was like they had to get this monkey all the way halfway across the planet. So I, there's got to be a story there. I said, well, if they take him around Africa, and there's a storm or there's a problem, and then King Kong escapes. That's how he meets Tarzan, you know? Instead of Tarzan going to Skull Island, which they tried to do as a graphic novel about 20 years ago and they couldn't clear the rights, I think Frank Cho and someone else was going, and maybe Dave Stevens, the artist, they couldn't clear the rights. 
And so they didn't do it, but they were going to do Tarzan on Skull Island, which is a good idea. But I thought my idea was a great idea because yeah. it, it fit the original story and it was a missing piece of that story, but also it allowed for Tarzan to interact with King Kong in his own environment. And King Kong to be out of his environment and to be confused and to be, you know, mm-hmm. not at his best. Mm-hmm. So we could equalize their, 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 the, the, the battle between them. Mm-hmm. You know, if Kong has been half starved and he's in an unfamiliar place, he's going to be at a disadvantage. And Tarzan, seeing this as his jungle, says, We've got to get this monkey out of my jungle. He says, no, he's too big. He's wrecking everything. So, you know, so it created a, a balance there that wouldn't have existed on Skull Island. Mm-hmm. You know, because Tarzan would be fighting dinosaurs as well as King Kong, and it's, there's a lot to do on Skull Island. It's a little overwhelming. Yeah. So, um, just a little bit of a shift here. Let's talk about Sherlock Holmes for a minute. About 10 or 12 years ago, Moonstone Books asked me to do a uh, Sherlock Holmes short story for a, a book called The Sherlock Holmes Crossover Casebook. And I had him meet Richard Henry Savage, the inspiration for Doc Savage, the real-life inspiration, because they were contemporaries. Or they would have been if Sherlock Holmes had been real. And so I wrote that story, and it was good, but I always wanted to write a standalone Sherlock Holmes story. And a few years later, another publisher asked me to do, you know, Sherlock Holmes meeting, you know, another character, and I did Herbert West from, you know, Mm -hmm. H.P. Lovecraft. So I did that, and I still couldn't write a Sherlock Holmes story that was just a Sherlock Holmes story until um, David Markham, from, uh, who edits the MX Sherlock Holmes anthology, said, would you write me a Sherlock Holmes story? I said, I'd love to, because it had no strengths, no preconditions. Mm-hmm. So I wrote a story. He liked it. Six months later, he says, can you do another? I did it. A year later, he's putting me in touch with Belanger Books. Can you write a story for our anthologies? And now I'm in this position where I'm writing six, seven Sherlock Holmes stories a year because these anthologies keep coming out. So they started accumulating, so I said, let's collect them and do a book, The Wild Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. It's part of our Wild Adventures series. Fortunately, Joe DeVito had a Sherlock Holmes painting that he painted for a publisher who never used it. So we had a painting all set. Mm. You know, so we, we did that last year, and I'm doing volume two once I collect a few more stories. So I'm up to 32 Sherlock Holmes stories, and it's like, somebody's got to get a grip here. I can't keep doing this. <laughs> I love the character, but I can't, you know, I don't want to end up writing more Sherlock Holmes stories than Conan Doyle. Well, it's pretty popular, though. Yeah, it's popular. I like writing them, but, you know, some are easy than others, and there's other things I want to write, too. Speaking of which, what about, like, are you going to do any more Pat Savage? I would love to if Condon S. would let me. I have a plot for another one. Uh, maybe two, but right now it's not on the boards. But that doesn't mean I've given up. It just means that I got to wait for an opportunity where they might let me do that. Mm-hmm. And you know, maybe they will, maybe they won't. Okay. So uh, one thing I've always been curious about is is uh, the path of Squirrel Girl. So why don't you tell us a story about that? I wish I could remember how I created Squirrel Girl in more detail than I do because people have brought things to my attention that I've forgotten. Recently, someone pointed to a Destroyer novel I wrote in three years before I created Squirrel Girl for Marvel, and I'd had the characters running through this Disneyland-type environment where they had these fictitious, you know, uh, cartoon characters as, you know, 
animatronic things and also as, you know, um, greeters in costume. And I had a squirrel girl in that, and a squirrel girl Ferris wheel. And I said, I didn't know I was thinking of squirrel girl that easy, early. And it's like, well, I guess I was. But what happened was I had an editor at Marvel when I was writing the Destroyer Black and White magazine, which was based on the Destroyer books I was writing at that time. And he said, would you write me a fill-in Iron Man story? And I said, sure. And I came up with this squirrel girl idea, which is partly based on the fact that I had squirrels in my attic and I was constantly dealing with them. So I was observing their habits. And partly because I had an ex-girlfriend who was a comics fan who um, would rescue animals. And she once helped me rescue a squirrel that had fallen out of one of my trees. And the thing that I think was the trigger, because someone reminded me of this story and I completely forgot it, is I'd gone to church with this girl one Sunday and unbeknownst to me, she had rescued a baby squirrel somewhere in the recent past. She brought it to church and tucked into her coat. It was winter. So I'm in the middle of service. Uh, and, you know, I look over and this little squirrel head pops out of her coat and looks around. And I didn't say anything. And what could I say? And, uh, you know, on the way out, she let it drink from the holy water, which, you know, was a little freaky. And, you know, and either I or a friend of mine who knew her hung the name Squirrel Girl in honor a nickname without telling her. It was kind of like back backdoor kind of nickname. And I guess the wheel started turning, and maybe somewhere along the line I would have created her even if I didn't do it for Marvel. So I did a Marvel story, comic story, Iron Man story. It was published in Squirrel Girl, had a kind of impact where people either loved her or hated her and Marvel thought she was a little too frivolous for their universe and they said we're not going to use her again but then they revived her and she became a hit and I always knew she was going to be popular if they just gave her a chance mm -hmm. so I created her as a way to uh, introduce a character to the Marvel Universe that was different the Marvel Universe, this was 1989, was getting grim and gritty a little too sexualized, and I grew up in Marvel Comics in the 60s. I wanted to bring back the fun and the good nature and the humor. So Squirrel Girl was meant to be a fun character, but also had kind of heart and, 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 and good intentions. And that's how, that's roughly how I remember she began, but you know, there's probably more to it because I keep getting new pieces of the puzzle. So what's happened with her since then? Well, she was revived and then she started to snowball, and they gave her her own magazine, The Unbeatable Squirrel Girl, and they got a writer named Ryan North to write it, and they got an artist named Erica Henderson to draw it, and Erica Henderson does it very cartoony. And even though it's not Marvel style, it became a hit. And one of the things, interesting is things is Erica Henderson's late father was C.J. Henderson, who used to come to these kind of conventions and wrote books. He wrote the first Spider novel since the 1940s, and uh, I wrote the next bunch of Spider novels since mm -hmm. the 1940s. I knew him just casually. Uh, so Squirrel Girl's main artist, Erica Henderson, has a pulp connection through her father. Which, and she also lives in the greater Boston area where I do, though I've never met her. And uh, she, she, the Squirrel Girl comic, Squirrel Girl became kind of a female empowerment character. Mm -hmm. They did a couple of young adult novels. I didn't write them. Shannon Hale did. And uh, I did her originally with Steve Ditko, who didn't want to do the character ever again. He thought he was, she was too frivolous or something. 
And uh, she's just taken on a life of her own. Now there's Squirrel Girl toys and Squirrel Girl, she's in a lot of video games as a playable character. And the joke about Squirrel Girl that evolved after I wrote my first story is she can mysteriously beat anyone. She doesn't always use physical strength or, or whatever. Sometimes she uses persuasion, but she's unbeatable because no one's been able to take her. And that's kind of, you know, kind of the joke, but also the power of her. Um, I want to go back a little bit to what you were mentioning earlier about the when, the destroyer novels and when you started to do a lot of research for these works. You mentioned before about doing a lot of travel. Why don't you talk about that a little bit? Well, when I um, when I was first writing, it's probably the early '80s in terms of when I started writing professionally. Uh, someone I had known for a while through the fanzine. Uh, and semi-professional circuit, David McDonald, he went from uh, Super Graphics Media Scene magazine to Starlog magazine, which I'd never read, and he became an assistant editor instead of throwing me a little bit of work, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think the first big thing I got to do was the, an article on the Doc Savage's 60th anniversary for their comic scene magazine. And Dave eventually got promoted to editor of, of Starlog and Fangoria. And one day, he, he reached out to me and said, they're making a movie out of The Destroyer down in Mexico, Mexico City. Do you want to cover it? Well, covering a movie is something I never thought of. I'd interviewed people. I'd interviewed Walter Gibson, pulp guys, comic guys. So I knew how to interview people, knew how to write up the interview. But traveling to a, a movie set and interviewing actors and directors and technical people, it never was in my wheelhouse. So I thought about it and I said, okay, I'll do it. So we got a ticket down to Mexico City and I was part of a junket and we went up, we watched them film and we, you know, we interviewed people and a book I'd written on The Destroyer was being used as a source book on that movie. So I was a little bit of a celebrity on that movie. So, um, Going to Mexico, that was like the first of three times I went to Mexico to cover movies down at the old Cherubusco Studios. Well, I did a good enough job that Dave, the next year or six months later, said, would you, um, what was it, would you cover The Return of Swamp Thing? I think that was the second one, I'm not sure. I did that. Then there was some junket involving three movies, uh, Trick or Treat, which was a horror movie, King Kong Lives, and then The Evil Dead 2, which is now a classic. And he sent me down to North Carolina for those three movies, so I spent a week going from set to set. And, you know, I fell into this career of writing for this magazine group of going on movie sets, and, you know, I, would, I, 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 was on, I was, went back to Mexico for um, The Mask of Zorro, which mm -hmm. is a pulp movie, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, and I was on The Shadow that was being filmed in, in L.A., the only time I went to L.A. for a movie. And I spent two weeks on the set there, watching them film and observing that, because I had the shadow background, and they ended up having me write the shadow movie magazine. Oh, okay. So when I started, I was interviewing people like uh, Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger. When we wrapped it up around 2008, 2009, when the magazine went out of business, I was interviewing uh, Keanu Reeves and uh, Hugh Jackman. So it was a big generational change of action heroes. And, you know, I, I interviewed a lot of people, had a lot of fun. I went to Prague three times, two times. I went to Mexico City three times. I went to Vancouver ten times. 
I went to Canada, uh, Deep South, um, lots of, I went to Yuma, Arizona, out in the desert there for uh, Rainbow Three, where they were just blowing stuff up everywhere, helicopters and tanks. A lot of them were out doing door shoots. So I did that for almost 30 years. Wow, I had no idea. Yeah, I covered a lot of film. Well, you know, I don't talk about it here because it's not it's what not. this group talks about. Well, but basically, I, I was, you know, uh, I guess you'd say an entertainment journalist mm -hmm. in the sense that I interviewed a lot of famous people all over the world. And uh, I had a good time doing it. And the, the benefit was that all this travel fed into my novels. Okay. Like when I went to London, I would write a story set in London. When I went to Yuma, Arizona, there was a situation where I was interviewing Sylvester Stallone and he told me of what he had to do to get AK-47s imported into this country legally. He had to go to Congress so he could get Soviet weaponry into this country for the shoot. And I thought, well, you know, if a bad guy wanted to take over a piece of America, and he needed the weaponry, make operating under the guise of a movie might be a way to mm -hmm. do it. So I did one of my most famous destroyers using a Sylvester Stallone type of, of character as being the guy importing all this weaponry. And he doesn't know the people financing the movie are trying to finance an attack on the US. It's going to attack from within. So you get ideas as well as locales. And so I did that for 30 years and I, I wrote. 40 destroyers, not all of them were inspired by my travels, but a good number of them were. Yeah. Wow. You didn't That's know that. I did not know that. No. I'm learning a lot today. I guess you are. So let's talk about what everybody is very excited about this at this Pulp Fest, which is Master of Mystery. The Rise of the Shadow, and I hear that it's already, you've already it's sold, sold out. out here. I brought hard covers, I brought soft covers, I didn't bring enough. I didn't, there's no way to know, you know, because yeah. a lot of people have been ordering it online. It's only been out for a few weeks, but I've been selling a lot of copies online and through Amazon, so I don't know that people, how, much, how many people just rushed out to mail order it. Why would you waste your money at Pulp Fest on something like this when you could buy some old pulps? Yeah, anyway. that is a great piece with a lot of information in there that yeah. people are going to... What happened with this book was interesting. People have been asking me to do two things. To reprint my old Duende History of the Shadow, which I published in 1980, which is a history of the Shadow Pulp magazine with some articles and interviews. And they also wanted me to reprint the best of my Sanctum Books articles, which accompanied the Sanctum Books Shadow reprints. I'm not that interested in reprinting old stuff until I can put the energy into new stuff, but... People kept asking, and you know, the original Duende history is, what, 40 years old now? So I guess maybe it, it could be updated. So um, about four years ago, we started to update the book, and we had Joe DeVito, commissioned by Tim Kane, who's in the back there, paint this cover for the cover, and uh, we hit a couple snags. One is, you know, I stupidly sent the PDF to Condé Nast just for their information and approval. And they decided, well, that's a licensed book. We don't want you publishing it. I got really mad. Uh, so we had some discussions. And I put the book aside for a while. So I got to figure this out because 
is not a licensed book. This is reprints of my old stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we have to be in their good graces because we have other licenses with them. So when I got that stuff, other stuff cleared away, I, 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 I said to Matt Mori, who designs these books for me, let's, uh, let's add some more stuff. I'm going to go ahead with this. I'm just going to figure out how to do it. So let's do So we built the book up to a, a much bigger compendium of articles uh, than it originally was going to be. And when we did that, it was so big. I said, it's going to be a $50 book. I said, I don't know if we should do a $50 book. I don't know if I want to put that kind of, you know, price on a book, even if it's a book people are asking for and probably sell. I said, this is a little bit much. A couple of interesting things happened. One is, uh, I got in touch with an artist named Colton Worley, who's done a lot of shadow paintings that are really nice. This is one of them, the back cover of the book. Uh, and I said, I'd like to use one of your images on the back cover of uh, my book that I'm planning. And he said, well, I have 10 of them. Yeah. I'll sell you all of them, you know? Uh, and I said, I don't need all of them. Maybe this is opening up ideas. And at the same time that was happening, I was talking to Condonese and saying, you know, I'm going ahead with this book. And they said, well, maybe we want to work with you on this book. And I said, well, I don't know. I'm already kind of, it's designed. And I thought about it. And I said, I got all this art. And the book is too big. Maybe it's two books. Oh, okay. Maybe it's two cheaper books with... And one of the big expenses of a book is cover art. Mm -hmm. And if you have the cover art and it didn't break your bank, it's like, yeah, there's two books there, maybe three if I dig out every shadow article I ever wrote that's worth reprinting. I don't know if I'd do that, but, you know, it's a thought. So I said to Condé Nast, tell you what, if you want to take the part of this book that's the most professional and most commercial, we can talk about that. I'm going to take the stuff that I think makes a good volume one, and I'm gonna publish it. And so fine, that's where we did so. This is, this is not the revised one day history, this is a compilation of um, um, a long article on the history of the shadow on radio, which I've updated meticulously since I first wrote it. Two interviews with Walter Gibson, one interview with Ted Tinsley, his ghostwriter, interviews with two of the artists, including Ed Cartier, who almost never gave inter interviews, a couple of articles on Gibson, an article on how Batman was inspired by the shadow, um, and some other stuff. And it's a nice, thick, but not too thick volume. And uh, um, I needed permission from uh, Condé Nast to reproduce some Ed Cartier art, and it was a good thing I... I, I did that because um, when I when I got the when I, they asked me to you know tell them what the title of the book is so they could write a letter of permission, they came back to me and said, "Well, you're calling it the Shadow Compendium. And it sounds like a licensed book. Well, here we are again." Mm -hmm. uh, and he said, "You know, can you change the title?" I said, yeah, okay. I called it the Shadow Compendium because that's what it was, a compendium of shadow articles. I wasn't in love with the title, but now there was a gun to my head. We were trying to get the book out for Pulp Fest. 
So I said, okay, let me come up with some other titles. I come up with a bunch, and this is the one I like, Master of Mystery, The Rise of the Shadow. It's a great title. And I remember thinking, I'm glad they objected. This is a better title. It's a better title. I wasn't doing my due diligence on thinking about what, what, what best title, because I wanted the title to honestly reflect what the book was. It's a compendium. It's reprints. Expanded reprints. I rewrote everything. But they're reprints. So we got a better title, and then the next volume, whoever does it, will be Dark Avenger, The Strange Saga of the Shadow. What and do you mean, whoever does it? Well, if Condé Nast <laughs> wants to put it out to the marketplace in partnership with me to a major publisher, I'm willing to look at that. Okay. If they don't, it'll be volume two. Okay. And even if they do, I still have a lot of articles on The Shadow, Shadow and Comics, other articles on The Shadow, and other interviews that can go into a volume three, which might be called The Legend of the Shadow, right. you know. So, um, so there might be three books here if, if the audience is willing to see all this stuff collected, you know. As a writer, I'm more interested in the future than the past, but some of these interviews and articles go back to 1975, that's a long time ago, and they're in fanzines you can't get anymore in magazines that are tough to find, so, yeah, having it all in one place is actually, there's a demand for that. And I knew that because people were asking me to do it. I just didn't take it as seriously as I should have because I got a spider to write and I want to do this and I want to do that. <laughs> and I want to do this other new thing. So here we are. Sold out, but, you know, it's so, on Amazon, it's on my website. Okay, you that's what, that it. was my next question. Is for the soft covers on Amazon, the soft and hard covers on my website. Hard covers exclusive with me. We'll do an ebook probably in September, October, so it'll be available in ebook eventually. Okay, but it's you know people like it. They're happy with it. It's already gotten some good reviews. Glad I did it. I'm glad I didn't do a fifty dollar book because I think it was just too much. Yeah, it'd be a yeah, great book. You know, if you're willing to spend 50 bucks to have something like this. Yeah, but I think people like the collectible idea of, well, there's a volume one and there's a volume two and there's different cover art, and, you know, right. I can use that cover art. And I think people like the idea that I, even after I read it, it sits on my shelf and I like looking at it, because that's how I am with books. It's a well, and also we got rights to, to reprint some Frank Hamilton art who's been, you know, deceased over a long time now. And I used to work with him. And what we did with this book that was different than other books is it's illustrated. Colton Worley did some interior illustrations. We got some photographs of the shadow actors. And we've got a lot of Frank Hamilton art as frontispieces. And there was so much of it on the shadow. We said, well, there's enough to fill this book up, but also do the next volume. It's like we got all the, you know, the art made it possible to rethink this book as this isn't a book. This is a couple of books and maybe three books but they'll be illustrated books. They'll be enjoyable on a level other than just, here's a whole bunch of reprints and right. interviews. Right, you know. So I hope people are, 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 are going to keep buying this because I think it's a great book. And I revived my old publishing name, Odyssey Publications, for this book because they published the original Duende History, which I was a part of back in those days. Excellent. Excellent. Well... I'm about done with questions. I wanted to leave enough time for audience questions, so. And this, by the way, is the cover painting to Empire Doom, my second Doc Savage meets the Shadow novel. Tim King once again 
commissioned that painting. Originally, it was going to be a wraparound, and uh, my contract was coming to an end, and it, the book had to be finished uh, and published, at least as a proof, by December 31st of that year, which I think was 2016 or 17. And uh, there wasn't time for Joe DeVito to paint the full wraparound, so we cut it, you know, and uh, say, well, you know, as long as we have the front cover, we're all, we're all set, you know. Okay, great. So I want to open it up to the audience. Questions? Yeah, I was wondering, um, do you ever uh, consider uh, doing a Doc Savage type of uh, book like you just did for the yeah, I, I, not only have I considered it, but it's probably something I should have done a while ago because I have a lot of Doc Savage. But the thing about Doc Savage I most want to do is establish a biography of Lester Dent, and I really want to finish that. The problem I've had with that is most commercial publishing houses don't know who he is, you know. But if there's a movie or a TV show, that the equation changes. So I'm trying to get that finished so that if I can't get a major publisher interested, we can do it and at least can be published. But a collection of my Doc Savage articles is also something that's probably, you know, I really should get around to doing it. Although sometimes I think it might be better to do it, because I already did a collection of my Doc Savage articles called Writings of Bronze. Are you familiar with that? Okay, if you look up Writings of Bronze by Will Murray, it's a collection of my Doc Savage articles. Not all of them, but it's a lot, it's a huge book. Yeah. Okay, I keep forgetting to bring it to the convention because technically my co-publisher published it, not me. But I actually done that, it was about 12 years ago. And, um, but there's a lot more that hasn't been reprinted. So what I've been thinking of, maybe I should do a book of just general pulp articles, including Doc, in the shadow and not just limited to one character. But that book is out there. You know, you can get it, writings in bronze, you know. Um, it's huge. Uh, I don't know how many articles in it, but I think there's like 30, maybe more, maybe 50. Some of them are long, some of them are short, but you know, we put a lot into that. Thanks. Next. I'm just ready to Yeah, well, I, I write visually and, you know, clearly, I hope, and entertainingly. Um, the issue with that is, of course, there's two copyright owners for the characters. And, you know, both Edgar S. Burroughs and, 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 and Condé Nast would probably want, because of the money involved, a pure Doc Savage movie or a pure King Actually, that's King Kong, so it's, it's the Marion C. Cooper people. I think the Marion C. Cooper people would be more open to it than the uh, Condé Nast because they don't want to split the money, but it, actually it would be a hell of a movie, you know. Um, it's just that, you know, people, even a big pie, people don't, like corporations don't like splitting a big pie. You even know? if it means losing half of Yeah, it's amazing to me. But, you know, if you think of it their way, if they have a chance of getting a Doc Savage movie out, it's, that's the whole pie. It's, your, it's theirs. This thing here, they might think, well, it's a great idea. It'd make a good movie. It'll probably be successful. But we're splitting the pie. 
and we're sharing uh, oversight. You know, we've got to agree to the, the filmmaker's view of Doc Savage, and the Cooper people have to agree to the their view of King Kong. And so it, it can get complicated, but you know, never say never. You know, if someone wants to do it and can offer enough money and get everybody in line, yeah, it could happen. I, I'm not holding my breath. You know, it's just, it's not why I write books, you know, but it could happen. You know, all you need is the right people with their heads on straight to say, this could make a lot of money. No, no one's ever done anything like this before. Because a lot of the King Kong meets movies are, the early ones are just clownish, you know. They're, they're, they're of their time. And now we're having King Kong meets Godzilla, Godzilla there. That, that's a bigger deal. It's done more intelligently, I hope. But it's still not the same as King Kong meets a different kind of hero. You know, King Kong meets Tarzan is a great idea, but you've got to figure out how to do it so that it works as a story. King Kong meets Doc Savage, you've got to figure out, well, what's the story that brings them together, that makes it work, that doesn't make it a joke? Anybody else? Yeah. Well, there's a funny story there. What happened was that um, when I first came into, I interviewed Saper and Murphy for um, Media Scene Preview, whatever it was then. They never published it. They wanted Pinnacle, who was the publisher of the Destroyer novels, to um, take out advertising, and Pinnacle didn't want to do that, so they held on to the interview. Well, I shared this interview with Saper and Murphy, and they loved it. And they said, we can build a book around this. And they had the Executioner series, which is also pinnacle, there was an Executioner war book, and it sold. So they thought, what could we do with the Destroyer? The Assassin's Handbook. The Destroyer, for those who don't know, was Remo Williams and Chuck. They made a movie about it a million years ago, Remo Williams, The Adventure Begins. That's the first movie I ever covered. So um, they got this idea for the Assassin's Handbook. And the idea was that everybody involved would, would write a piece. And I had written the interview. Somehow that turned into, will you write it, and we'll edit it, and we'll add stuff, and we'll subtract stuff. So I wrote this ginormous manuscript and sent it to Warren Murphy, who said, okay, don't send it to Dick Saper. But Dick Saper lived in my neck of the woods, and I met him, and we became friendly. And Dick called me one day, I want to see the manuscript. I couldn't say no to him. You know, I mean, it's just friends. So I sent it to him, and of course, Warren wanted to edit it one way, and Dick wanted to edit it the other way, and Dick ripped stuff out and put stuff in and did all sorts of stuff. So the book that came out wasn't exactly the book I, I wrote, but then again, I wrote so much that there was stuff you could throw out and still have a big book. So it became the Assassin's Handbook. I don't think that was the original title. And it was published as an oversight trade paperback, and they thought it would do real well, but not long after that, Pinnacle went out of business. And so they were at the royalties. Uh, when I think Harlequin took over, no, it wasn't Harlequin, it was some uh, NAL, when they took over, they brought it back as Inside San and Jew, San and Jew, a much smaller book, or at least a paperback sized book. And uh, then they lost the rights and Harlequin took over. So the book kept getting kicked around and Harlequin didn't want to 
bring it back. But that's the story of uh, the Assassin's Handbook. It was it was quite the uh, undertaking, uh, but I was glad I did it. It was an interesting book, you know. People loved it. Just that you know, it it was a weird size for a and price for something like that initially, and then been going out of business and kind of killed the, the the potential to keep it in print. My first one was number 56 in Country Group, and then I started doing them regularly with 69 Blood Ties, and I did them right up to the last one I wrote from scratch was um, 105, 6, 7, um, Feast or Famine. So I did 40, you know, over slightly more than a 10 year period of time. Amazing. And back? Well, it's it's chaotic, because you know? <laughs> <clears throat> I'm not just writing novels. I'm writing short stories, do interviews, whatever. It's I try to write something every day I possibly can without killing myself. I do a lot of rewriting. Uh, I compose fairly quickly. I work in spurts. I tend to write more in the evening. I lose a lot of time during the day because I just have to kind of mentally gear myself to do certain kinds of writing. Fiction writing, I have to really gear myself up to. Non-fiction, I can write any old time, usually, if I have the, the mindset to do it, the energy. But I, I don't have a, a set writing schedule, except the heaviest writing is done in the evening. I wonder why. Probably because I'm a night person more than a day oh, okay. person. Go ahead. Well, what's the possibility of, uh, I know you said that's more in my head, yeah. I don't think they're great right now, but I also feel like there's an argument to be made that if you're going to do an updated Doc Savage for the mass market, which might or might not be successful with James Patterson, it's really smart to keep the uh, original character alive in some way for, you know, if no other reason, for, for just safety reasons. Because what if... I mean, this first Shadow novel was not well received at all, you know, that James Patterson did with the co-author. I don't know what the Doc Savage novel will be like. There's no way to tell because we don't know who's going to co-write it. But, you know, if, they, if these things flop, you know, you don't want to lose the original Doc Savage as a valuable property because, you know, they're going to make a Doc Savage movie. They're still going to probably go to the original Doc Savage. They might update him. They might not go for the new Doc Savage that will be updated because we don't know who he is mm -hmm. yet or how popular he's going to be or how well accepted he's going to be. Shadow was a very simple character. I don't know how they screwed it up. <laughs> Doc Savage is a little more complicated character and it's easier to mess up. So I, I have my fingers crossed that they can at least do a Doc Savage novel that captures the spirit of Doc Savage. but. Right now, it's it's not feeling all that wonderful. Well, we've got a few more minutes left. Any more questions? Who's the character that you want to write that you haven't yet? Mm, Probably a Robert E. Howard character like Conan the Barbarian or Solomon King. Mm. 
because you know, I, I, they were among the first things I read after I got into Burroughs and, and Dark Savage. And I like his writing style. I think it would be a challenge to write it. I think Conan's an interesting character. Solomon Kane's an interesting character. King Cole's an interesting character. And um, that, would, that would interest me because it would be in the pulp vein, but also you know something I haven't done before in a style I haven't worked in because when I was first writing, I wrote stories that I wouldn't market, but I was very influenced by Howard. I just didn't write necessarily Howard kind of stories. I just liked his style and his approach. So he was a major influence. I write Lovecraft stories for anthologies, I like that, but I've done a bunch of them now. Um, but I think it would be anything, any one of Robert E. Howard's major characters would probably be the most appealing to me right now. There isn't much else that I either haven't done or maybe I might have outgrown, I don't know. Um, that would be fun, but I wouldn't do a novel. I, I would do a short story. I don't know that I could sustain that style over a novel, and I'm not sure I could sustain that style in a short story. I have to reread them. Who was this again? Breton, Breckenridge Elkins was one of Robert E. Howard's oh, okay. uh, Western characters, a humorous character, and uh, a lot of fun. So much successful that uh, E. Hoffman Price kind of borrowed the idea and did his own version for many years. Um, his name is, I wrote an article on this once and I can't remember the guy's name, but um, very popular character, very, very nice stories. Uh, but I don't know that I would, I would do Ridge Elkins. I think of Conan or somebody like that would be more to my taste. But it would be a good challenge. It would be something that, you know, someone said, I want you to do it. I don't think I'd say no. I'd say, all right, let me reread those stories and see what I can do. Well, I think we're up. We're time's up. Thank you so much for attending. Thank you so much, Will. That was You're welcome. Very that was painless. Thanks for your support. You've been listening to a Pulp Event podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the pulp magazines for over 25 years. Please visit us online at thepulp.net. Also, look for the PulpNet on Facebook and on Twitter. Thank you for listening, and keep reading the pulps. The Pulp Event Podcast is copyright 2021.